This is Murder Scotland, a podcast that looks at famous and not so famous murders that happened in Scotland or were committed by people with a connection to Scotland. We'll just see how tenuous we can get. My name is Julie Lamont. Me and my co-host Alan Nicholl will look at these crimes with 21st century eyes and discuss, are they really what we thought they were? Welcome back to Murder Scotland. This week's episode is about Sheila Garvey. Alan has a lot of information on Sheila, so this is going to be a two-parter. This first part is about the crime and the second part is about the trial. There's a couple of things I should say before we start for our American and non-Scottish listeners. Um, When we refer to somebody being pissed, it means they're drunk. If they've had a skin full, it means they've drunk a lot of alcohol. If they're in the scud, they're naked. Um, And if they're a nationalist, that's somebody that wants Scotland to be independent from the United Kingdom. So with those explanations, here's the episode. A book I wrote uh, came out in June of this year. It's called Sheila Garvey, Mastermind or Victim? And there's no question mark. It's up to the reader to decide whether she organised the murder of her husband or whether she had nothing to do with it. Um, It's up to everybody to look at the evidence and make up their own mind. So she murdered her husband? That she was convicted of murdering her husband. Okay. Um, It's still quite controversial. Uh, There are some people who maintain that she didn't murder her husband. And indeed, from my research, I took the view that she possibly didn't have any involvement in murdering her husband. Uh, But certainly her lover, who was 13, no, in fact, he was 11 years younger than her, uh, he he certainly murdered them one night at the marital home. So where does she live then? Let's start from the beginning. Where's she from? Who is she? Sheila Garvey was from Stonehaven. She was a Sunday school teacher in Stonehaven. When she was 20, she married uh, Maxwell Robert Garvey, who was from a moneyed family, who um, were all business persons. And she moved into West Cairnbeg in Kincardenshire with Max, or Maxie as she called him, once they were married. She came from a much poorer background, and it looks like for the rest of their married life together, up until 1968. Max just controlled everything. He controlled the money. He decided the wallpaper would be put up. He decided everything in the house. And she had no say in anything. No one's choosing my wallpaper. That's shocking. Oh, Steve must have some say in it. Well, nobody's dictating how how your house should be. I mean, that like I I understand that um you know back in the sixties men had more prominent roles in the family and the finances of homes, but is is that not that that must have even been unusual then that the man was choosing like everything that the woman didn't have any say. Well. That perhaps sums up the relationship because he decided on everything. He decided when they would go on holiday, where they would go to. Um, He decided absolutely everything about their lives because she had 
no say because she came from a, a poor background? Because she came from a poor background because he was a massive, nasty control freak. I think he probably was. Um, she reckoned the marriage was, was good to 1962. And at that point, he started taking an interest in, in naturism, which is probably quite a, a difficult thing to follow in Aberdeen <laughs> and Cardenshire, you know, Wait, given the climate. Backtrack here. So the guy's getting into, like, going out in the scud. He's going out uh-huh. in the nude. Yeah, yeah. What, on the beach? In well, Aberdeen? The, or just the, generally? No, um, they had their own particular place in Afford in Aberdeenshire. Uh, it was known there as Kinky Cottage. Um, some very poor journalism down the years has led them to believe that the family home was called Kinky Cottage, but it never was. It was just this place in Afford in Aberdeenshire, uh, Kinky Cottage. and um, So it's like a holiday home? Well, it was a, it was a small cottage that they had and um, he used it for uh, naturist get-togethers. And, uh, so they weren't the only naturists there. It was it, he was inviting a crowd round. Well, there was there was a naturist club in Edinburgh that they went to, and Sheila didn't want to go there. Um, she didn't like the dirty old men that hung around the place. Oh, really? So and this she, isn't just she had people. Two daughters as well at that point. Oh, wow! And okay. they were forced to go with their clothes off. So um, she didn't like the whole setup. So this isn't just people that are into just like frolicking. In the nude, because they feel like it, this there was like a sort of like sexual aspect to it. I think that's what she imagined, um, and it doesn't take much for her to be to imagine that, I suppose, because um, you know when you've got old men and you've got young girls there, it's maybe not a good healthy mix. And well, I can see why. I can see why our mother <laughs> was that, like natural body, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but in saying that. that it's, uh-huh. it's, I mean, I can imagine it being really unusual then. Mm-hmm. Like, I think if people do it today, it, they're probably doing it in warmer climates than here. Yeah, and because they, they, they went to, uh, they went abroad on holidays, uh, were naturist holidays. And she was okay with that for some reason, because everybody else, it was a warm climate, everybody had stripped off, but somehow it doesn't quite suit the climate in, in Scotland. Yeah, I mean, it'd be bloody freezing, wouldn't it? It would be, yeah. absolutely. Uh, 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 so she was totally against it. When they opened this naturist club in Afford, um, he wanted her to open it with no clothes on, but she refused and she just uh, What, just him. her? Not him? Or was oh, no, everybody. Was oh, right, everyone was going to take everyone was to take the okay. clothes off, but she just point blank refused. So she did stand up to him every so often. Um, he was, as you say, he's a bit of a control freak, I think. And he began to experiment with pills. Um, he would take Pro Plus pills. Uh, he would drink uh, lots and lots of whiskey. Pro Plus, like caffeine tablets? Ah. Uh-huh. All right. <laughs> and he would take these on top of lots and lots of drink. Oh, wow, okay. Um, and then he had pills that he called his anti-sex pills because they would just make him sleep. But these they were called sonorals, and they actually play quite a big part in the story because um, on the night that he was murdered, she 
apparently took two sonorals and they're now um, they're now virtually banned in this country because they're so addictive. Oh, really? And even coming off them, um, you're, the, the doctor warned you, coming off them is even dangerous. Oh, wow, If you, that's if you just immediately stop them. And it, it, do they really knock you out? Or they're they, just really addictive? I, th- I think they, they, they do have a, a really sedative effect. But uh, on the night he was murdered, she had a gin and tonic, a gin and orange, and two sonorals. And uh, not a huge amount was made of that at her trial. I thought more could have been made of that to try and explain why she woke up and the, the murder had was oh, about to take place. Oh, she slept through it? Wow, okay. Well, she didn't quite sleep through it, but she, she woke up uh, when the, there were two people in the house. Okay. So, um, but we're getting to that. We're getting. We're, get, that. we're getting to that. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> we're getting to that. What happened was the um, they married uh, in nineteen fifty five. It was it's a the eleventh of June nineteen fifty five at Donotter Parish Church. As I say, she was twenty. He was. 22 and um, the reception was over by 2 o'clock they got married and Max and his best man were totally pissed what? Um, and uh, she took up in the the, the big house they had at West Cairnbeg so she moved in there but as I say she didn't have much in the way of a say in the place how it was was run because he'd already um, leased it from his father who owned the place and uh, they settled down from 1955 to 62. She reckoned the marriage was was pretty good because he was real making a go of the place and he was uh, pretty successful in turning it around um, to the extent that he had when by the time it was 1968 and Max was murdered, they had three cars, they had a Jaguar and two Cortinas. So what was it? What was the business that he was doing? It was a, a farm. It oh, was just, right, okay. Run, running a farm. A farm. Right. Wow. And, uh, Gosh, he jags off of having a farm. Yeah, well, it, it, was, it was obviously pretty good at what he did. Yeah. And he, he had a good uh, farm manager as well. Um, so it was a big farm. It was a big farm, yeah. It's still there. And uh, he also bought himself a private plane. A private plane? He had a private plane. What? And he... This is the Kim Kardashian of the north of Scotland. Well, yeah, I suppose it was, there's, there's some, uh, except I'm not sure who the Kardashians are. <laughs> um, but, you know, certainly he, he had plenty of money. It was the days before the breathalyzer test. So what he would do is he'd go to Stonehaven, uh, drink himself senseless, and then um, drive back. It was about a 20-minute drive from That's Stonehaven okay. to uh, West Cairnbeg. And uh, indeed... That, that was quite normal then, right? It was then. Drinking oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it wasn't regarded the same way as it, as it is now. Well, I mean, particularly here in Scotland, because like, you just can't drink at all and drive no. anymore. No, you can't. The The... The level is so low these days 
that um, even having one drink. Even having a hangover from the night before. Oh, a hangover yeah. from the night before is just yeah, as, you can't drive. Just as bad, yeah. of course. But um, in those days, it was like a sort of lads thing, you know, you, you, you would get pissed and drive home, quite a thing. And uh, that's certainly what he did, just about every night. And of course, he worked hard and he played hard. So one of the things that he did was that he, um, just for a laugh, um, he strafed the traffic on the road, the coast road up to Aberdeen, by zooming in in his, his little plane and pretending he was shooting them. What? And people were obviously panicking when this plane was coming so low out of the clouds. I mean, um, I get he's young, right? So even, like, what, so he's like 29 at, when they ended their happy bit of their marriage-ish. Yeah, yeah. But I, that's still stupid. Who would do something like that? Well, he, he was living for kicks. He had met somebody from the, there was a, an American air base at a place called Edsel, which is a lovely little town. Uh, and uh, these guys were giving him a, you know, an idea of what the swinging 60s were like in the States. And he was craving some of that sort of um, lifestyle himself. Okay. And uh, he, he was living for kicks, as I say. He was he was drinking, he was popping pills. He was... Uh, Being a nudist. Yeah, uh, you know, generally um, making a nuisance of himself. Yeah. And apart from naturism... He then decided that um, Sheila, his wife, should take a lover. And his explanation for that was that he wanted her to be uh, a better lover for him. What? So it's, it goes against the grain. Did he have a lover? He had a lover and it's still not clear who first had a lover. His lover was the sister of... The man, Tevendale, who was Sheila's lover. What? So <laughs> Sorry, he... what? How did that work? Did they introduce each other? How did that? That's so weird. What happened was the the Garveys. Well, certainly Max was a a big nationalist. Okay. And so was Brian Tevendale, who came from St. Cyrus up on the, the northeast coast. And uh, they met at the Bannockburn Rally in 1967. Okay. And having met, uh, Max seems to have taken a shine to Tevendale, who was, what, about 12, 13 years younger than him. Oh, re- what? And he so- invited him round constantly he would meet him in the pub in Stonehaven. So this guy's like a late teenager sort of thing. Is that what we're saying? Uh, yeah, Brian. Brian yeah, 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 yeah. He was, he was only 22 when uh, he stood trial. Wow. And, I mean, he, he was, he'd been in the army. His father was a major during the Second World War and he was a bit of a local hero, the, the, the father. And, of course... Brian Tevendale joined the forces as well and then totally hated it. His brother joined the forces and still stayed in, but um, Brian hated it. And according to his version of events, 
He was dishonourably discharged from the forces after he stole cars in Aldershot. What? And the idea was that he would get booted out of the forces. Um, so he did it on purpose to get booted out? That, or that's he what he later caught. claimed, but oh. I think he just went off the rails. Yeah. By the sound of it. And, this uh, story's crazy already. We haven't even got to the murdering part yet. Well, that's right. I mean, the whole story is is quite remarkable because they try to pass it off as the swinging sixties, and there's really nothing swinging about it at all. It's all very sordid. Yeah, the the I mean, there's um, there's lots of people these days that like I'm I probably not everything around here in Scotland so much but like in the States they do like polyamory and open relationships uh-huh. and stuff like that but this is like 1960s rural Scotland that's mm-hmm. just completely bizarre <laughs> I mean maybe the rural communities are wild behind the scenes and I am fascinated well I, I think many, many of them are because um, you know big cities sort of lag behind when it comes to you know the the sort of moral um Strictures that we have in cities compared to certain towns. Do you think? I, I've got no doubt about it. I, I think um, smaller places can be more wild. Which places? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be telling. Is there any uh, you're thinking of particularly? <laughs> uh, well, certainly that that part of the world up in Kincardineshire. Um, it didn't seem to be that out of place. I think because of the American influence. Ah, okay. Um, you know, because the instead of reading books about agriculture, apparently Max would uh, just import the latest pornography from from the from London. Oh, like via the American Soho. soldiers. Or- uh, and of course they had they had books, etc. And indeed one of the, the points that she made, uh, Sheila made was that um he had a book of sexual positions and this sort of stuff. And, you know, she had she was aghast by the whole thing. She she didn't uh, really think it was it was you know something that should be discussed as yeah. openly. Whereas he was saying you know you're you're just a Sunday school teacher. Well, she was a Sunday school teacher. I mean, what did he expect? Yeah. Well, I, I can see from his point of view his argument that she was a bit fuddy duddy, whereas he was far more. Avant-garde, I suppose. Avant-garde. Yeah, but also, I mean, in those kind of communities, like, I just can imagine she could get shunned for being just a nudist, let alone a nudist that's like got a lover or anything like that. I mean, the Church of Scotland had a huge amount of influence then, right? Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. you could really <clears throat> get yourself sort of shut out from society if you were had a child out of wedlock or anything like that. I think that's probably right. But um, the according to both um, Sheila and Brian Tevendale, um, he kept on setting them up, the, the, the pair of them. Max kept on setting the two of them up together and, and then going to bed early, leaving them downstairs. And then when she came upstairs, he'd say, you know, tell me what happened, tell me what happened. And eventually one night, he apparently, uh, it was a cold night, um, he just pushed her, he took all her clothes off and pushed her into Brian's bedroom. Because he was staying over in, in West Cairnbeg. And uh, according to, you know, 
to her and Brian Tevendale. Um, that's when they, they, they first slept together. And after that... Is she saying she didn't go willingly? Like, is she, she saying she, this was a rape situation? Well, um, I wouldn't say it was a rape as such because she had there'd been a build-up to it and she hadn't said no. Well, so yeah. I don't think there was a question of consent. Even in those days, it was just a, a case of... Um, in today's eyes... In today's it eyes, it's horrific. really rapey, yeah. Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, um, today, uh, Max Garvey would have been uh, guilty of yeah. rape, um, given the fact that he uh, enjoyed um, raping her anally. <gasps> what? She... Why didn't you lead with this? I wanted to. <laughs> I, I wanted some details that were going to make me think this guy's an arsehole. This is what? That's an unfortunate phrase. Just yeah, used sorry. There. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, nowadays. Uh, that that would be regarded as rape. Um, in those well, days, it was, it was rape regardless, right? Even then, it was rape. It's just yeah, like, you mean in the eyes of the law? It was in the eyes of yeah. the law. Yeah, yeah. Back then, what well, it wasn't rape because she was married to him. She was married to him, and yeah. because in the nineteen sixties, this was like what a third world country that just didn't have any laws to protect women. Well, that's one way of putting it. I suppose. Um, the other side of the coin was that Brian's sister, Trudy, who was also married with three kids, um, she was married to a policeman in Aberdeen. And um, she was quite happy to go to bed with uh, Max Garvey. I think because he had so much money and he's one of the sort of local characters that she had decided that she would be quite happy to... Um, you know, spend some some time with them. So they'd go to hotels in Glasgow and Edinburgh and uh, the four of them would go to the hotels and, of course, Max and Trudy would go into one room and Brian and Sheila would go into another room. And so it was proper, like, way-swapping happening. It was, uh, except the, the papers, um, when they reported it, I tried to make out it was it was wife swapping, but in fact, um, with Brian and uh, Trudy being brother and sister, there was never any suggestion of them ever yeah. being together. I mean, that's that's taking it too far. But at the same time, what Max would do was he would spend the night with Trudy, and then demand that Sheila be brought in to his room. Right. And she was like a piece of meat, really. And Trudy was just like, that's all right, no worries. I think she was very compliant because I think she had her eyes on uh, eventually replacing uh, okay. Sheila in West Cairnbeg. Right. I'm pretty sure that is, that is the case because uh, she put up with a hell of a lot. And it, it says in, in, I guess you've read, this is from Sheila's book, this about the rape and the wife swapping, well, the sister swapping situation. And it's in Sheila's words that she absolutely was not participating willingly in this. Or, I mean, she she go along with it, but she was really unhappy about the situation. I think it was the latter. Um, I'm pretty sure that um, she submitted to him, but didn't really consent 
to what was happening. Well, I mean, if she's domestically abused by him, uh-huh. she's been raped by him. Like she's, uh-huh. And also in a time when it wasn't easy to just go and leave somebody that was the the provider that was giving you all your money and ma- maintaining your lifestyle, I guess it was really difficult. Yeah, well, he had all the money. Um, she uh, had the kids, uh, three, three children, and um, at one point her and... Tevendale actually ran off together. Oh, really? And guess who drove them south to Bradford? Was Trudy. Yeah. And you know, she what? She left the kids. Yeah, she left her kids. She left her kids, and uh, when once she went down there, she went down for less than a week. But once she had done that, um, she had phoned to speak to the kids, and of course, Max. Uh, held the phone out and said, "That's your son crying for you," and uh, it worked. And she yeah, came manipulated home. Come she back. came home, but he was still a bit uh, annoyed that she'd even gone in the first place. And of course, Trudy was really annoyed because she had set it up to go to Bradford on the basis that it was a woman from Stonehaven that she knew who was living in Bradford. Yeah, and she'd driven them down. Of course, when Sheila left Bradford. She left Brian there on his own and he chucked his job in Aberdeen. Oh, I know. So he had, he had nothing to go back to, although he did come back. And I think that was the start of the uh, animosity between the two men. Uh, up until that point, I think it was just all's fair in love and war. Uh, but after that, I think uh, certainly... Um, According to what Tevendale later said, he was beaten up twice um, in Stonehaven by two guys uh, the first time, and it was two. The next one had a knife the second time. And um, they said this is a warning from the skipper. Now, that was what Max Garvey liked to be called, the skipper, because wow. he made a plane. So um, you throw that into the mix, and you start to have a bit more of an idea of how complicated this has become. Do we know what Brian's thoughts were about this kind of being pushed into having sex with Max's wife and how she was abused and all that kind of thing? Well, he was 22 and he was delighted that this lovely uh, older lady, uh, she was 10 10 years older than him, um, was pushed into his bedroom. It It was perfect for him. Um, but um, the way it all worked out was once Max realised that um, Sheila and Brian had developed feelings for each other, um, he became quite obsessed about the whole thing and became jealous. So his whole intention was basically just to use her like a lump of meat to mm-hmm. kind of give her out to his pal so that he could have the sister. Mm-hmm. And then she decided she liked him, and that was oh, this is this guy is horrible. I mean, I would say the point where you said he's a rapist, I, I was out. I was like, I think he's obviously the person that's going to get murdered. I think in this story, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where it's going. But mm. I was at that point thinking, this sounds like a this 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 is domestic violence, right? I mean, uh-huh. this is horrible. Okay, anyway, back to the story. 
Well, it wasn't just domestic violence, it was psychological abuse. He would, he would taunt her and all this. Um, he was physical abuse. Yeah. Um, towards the end, he nearly broke her arm one time and he smashed a glass and held it to her face. Jesus. Um, and I, I think maybe that added up. So the, to the extent that um, Brian, um, having, according to him, been attacked twice by people on the skipper's orders, um, I think he perhaps took the view that he was probably doing Sheila a favour as well by um, organising uh, Max's murder. Oh, right, okay. So he he was doing it to kind of like protect himself and her as well. I think that's a possibility. I think that's a possibility. Um, the, the, the real crux of the story is trying to prove that she knew what was going to happen. And I read through every word of the trial uh, on the basis that I was looking for that clinching piece of evidence yeah. which convinced me that um, the Crown uh, had a good case against her. And, you know, you can read all the way through it and it just leaves you with more questions. Wow, okay. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm not utterly convinced that uh, the case against her was proved beyond a reasonable doubt. Except that um, and we're a bit ahead of ourselves here. Right. At the trial, um, there were certain things said uh, that uh, incriminated her much more than anyone would have imagined. And the incrimination uh, basically came from Trudy, the sister. Oh, who didn't have any motivation whatsoever. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, she had plenty of motivation because uh, she had been dumped by Max by this time. Okay. What happened was that uh, Sheila's straight-laced parents who lived in New Street in Stonehaven, um, they called everybody together when they realised how upset their daughter was. Can I just say, I, sorry to interrupt, but I really like when we're on the podcast, whenever you have to talk about something, you always have a really specific location. I've noticed that. It's really cool. It's like whenever we're talking about, um, I don't know, one of the, the the crimes that happened in air, you were like, and then you go down this road and <laughs> this, this location, you you really got a memory for addresses. But anyway, I digress, sorry. <laughs> yeah, you do digress. Um, <clears throat> it's maybe just, you know, because that's what I did. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you really like the details. You, you've... Particularly addresses. I've noticed because I sit and edit the podcast. Uh huh. And whenever I'm going through, I'm kind of like you edit everything out that I've just said. <laughs> no, right, okay. No, I leave in. I leave in like ninety nine percent of what what we talk about. There's sometimes we talk about things where we go off track, and I take that out. But um, yeah, I've noticed you always you're always good on the addresses. You've always got a specific address. Yeah, but it might be the fact that, um, you know, you spend your entire professional life getting addresses exact, same as names, if you can. Yeah. But uh, I also think that New Street in Stonehaven... Is it quite a prominent street? No, not, not particularly, but um, there are people living in it now. 
Oh yeah, that's true. And they might listen and be and like, they, "What? They, they might Our think, street? You know, I, I had no idea." Yeah, no, that's cool. That's a yeah, okay, fair. That's a really you know because um, that's a really good thing. Um, I remember just about all the addresses. I think, and I think the, the reason for that is that there are people living in those houses now who may have no idea what happened. Probably, honestly. Uh-huh. I mean, you think about particularly some of these older like Victorian properties around Glasgow and the surrounding areas. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh-huh. they could, anything could have happened in some of them, right? Uh-huh. Well, uh, I suppose a, a case in point was the Oscar Slater trial with Miss Gilchrist in West Princess Street. Um, I walked by there one time and looked up at the window because I know where the murder took place. Yeah. And there was a bunch of students with cans of beer and they obviously had no idea uh, where they were living. Oh, wow, okay. Although I understand that the person who moved in subsequent to that uh, has now got a chalk mark in the floor. <gasps> no! Because that's where Miss Gilchrist's body was found. No, are you kidding? Well, some people like Oh, no, that's, like that. that's taking the truth. True crime too far. It is. Come <laughs> on, like marking the floor where somebody died. Oh no, because uh-huh. you'd never have it out of your mind. It's bad enough, like living in a place where somebody had been murdered. It would cross your mind. You could probably get that down to just being like a once a week situation where you think uh-huh. about it, or yeah. every time there's a bump in the night. But like you put a chalk line on the floor every second of every day, you walk past that thing, you're thinking someone was murdered there. Someone was murdered there. Yeah. That's, yeah. I, mean, I think the worst thing about the, the Slater case is that um, whilst he was convicted, he was acquitted in 1926, I think it was. Uh, so whoever murdered her got away with it. Oh, really? Well, maybe we should do that that one on one of these episodes. That's a good murder. Yes, okay, that's right. worth That's a murder about. to come back to. I think so, Back yes. to Sheila Garvey. Uh, yeah, sorry, Sheila Garvey. <laughs> right. Um it's what the Watsons um, called the conference. They were calling together everybody who was involved in this setup. Um, the idea being that um, their son-in-law Max had realised things had gone too far, and he wanted his wife back, and he wanted her back at the farm, and um, he drove to the conference, as I understand it, with Trudy and uh, Brian Tevendale and Sheila drove to the conference and it was already decided by um, by Edith Watson, um, Sheila's mother, that it was about time all this stopped. Yeah. And they just went back to their own lives, particularly since Trudy was married with three children yeah. herself. Um. And that was the outcome of it. Now, I think that's an important point to bear in mind because um, Trudy must have been pretty unhappy about that outcome. She had given up quite a lot of her time and uh, she had obviously given up much of her dignity. And uh, here she was, just dumped. Yeah. Left out in the street, as it were. Yeah. Um, So I've got a theory about that. Possibly coming up. Interesting. Um, In any event, um, what happened, what we can say for absolutely certain, what was that um, on the night of the 14th of May, 1968, 
Um, Brian Tevendale had coerced a, a, another co-worker who had a car to drive to West Cairn Beg. Um, he killed Max Garvey. Right. He killed him by um, hitting him with a gun, which was Max's gun. Hitting him with a gun? Hitting him with a gun to stun him. Okay. And then he put a bullet through the back of his head. A .22, it was a low calibre. Okay. And uh, according to what Sheila Garvey says... And wait a minute, Sheila and the kids are in the house at this point? She is lying sleeping. Because she had the pills. She had the sonorils uh-huh. and she had a, a gin and orange. Gin and orange. Um, Max had been out that night. Um, he had come back in after a skinful and he poured a large gin for Sheila. He had a drink himself. He took some sonorils. So he was pretty well anaesthetised as well. Mm-hmm. According to what she said, she woke up at some point in the morning uh, thinking it was the kids because the kids were in the next bedroom to her. Jeez. And she thought it was one of the kids had come through and she left the light on in the hall. She left the door wide open uh, so that if the kids were upset at any point, there were three young children next door. Yeah. Um, then she just assumed it was one of the kids. And then she recognised this person as Brian Tevendale. Now, he hadn't seen Sheila for, it was several weeks apparently. So he had no idea um, about the what cars were available, what cars were not available. And there was a white car that she used to drive. It was a Cortina Estate. Uh-huh. Um, there was a blue Jaguar. Uh, Mark 10 that Max used to drive and uh, there was Max's Cortina a 1600D which is a really powerful car Um, but there was only one car in the place that night apart from the fact that um, Brian and Alan Peters um, he was only 20 um, he had appeared with them yeah and they went upstairs, they woke up, they woke up Sheila, they made her go into the bathroom, and then she heard these thumping noises. Which and, was what, the shooting? Well there was there was apparently the what he did was he used a pillow and put the gun into the pillow and fired it at Max's head. And Sheila's locked in the bathroom at this point. She's locked in the bathroom. And uh, when it came to moving the body, because they had a tarpaulin with them, yeah, um, she then held on to the children's bedroom door to stop the kids seeing the father getting bumped down the stairs. So they've let her out of the bathroom at this point. The Brian Tevendale had gone to the bathroom and told her to come out of the bathroom. Right. She did. And when she was holding the, the door handle of the children's bedroom, um, that's when they bumped the body down the stairs. Okay. Um, they then took Max's Cortina to the airfield that he left his plane at and they left the car there. Uh, it was Brian that drove the car. Um, 
and they pulled out the choke. Now, that's something that you won't know anything about. I, I know what a choke is, yeah. Okay. I've been in antique it, cars it, before. <laughs> what's it used for then? Well, I don't know what it's for, but I know there's, <laughs> I know there's a thing you pull out in the dashboard. And if you if you don't pull it out of the car stalls, I know this because one of my friends had a really, really, really old car when we were like 17. All right, okay. And she used to, she used close, to stall it at every yeah, traffic light. Yeah, it's, it's to increase the richness of the, the mixture of the petrol. Okay. And it's when the car's cold that you pull the choke out and when the, the car's warm, you push the choke back in. Okay. And he put the wipers on even though there was no rain that night. So he left the car at the airfield uh, for Dune. And uh, then they took the body to a place called Lauriston Castle. Now, the reason they did that is because Brian Tevendale used to play at Lauriston Castle, which is near St. Cyrus on the coast. Okay. And he discovered that, in fact, there was a sort of underground um, tunnel which was used for uh, for water. In and out the, the old castle. Okay. And he discovered this, and that's where he hid the body. Now, what's what's Sheila doing at this point? So, they've left. They they left. She's kept the door. Did the kids wake up? No, no. She slept. The kids. Uh, the kids kept sleeping. They slept on. She didn't wake them up. Obviously, she didn't wake them up. Stressed them out. She's standing in front of the door to stop them coming out and seeing what's happened. Uh-huh. They've left. And what, is she's just like, ding dong, the witch is dead? Or is she calling the police? What's happening with her? Well, according to what she said in her memoirs, uh, Marriage to Murder, the book is called, um, she is so stunned that she doesn't obviously have any more sleep. She just sits downstairs and um, has no idea, you know, what to do. She doesn't uh, call the police at her trial. It was suggested that you know any right-minded person would have immediately called the police, but um, I'm not so yeah, sure. No, if your if your domestic abusive husband has been like serially raping and abusing you for years and years and years is suddenly out of the picture and it has been telling you absolutely everything that you're allowed to do and how to live mm-hmm. for the last what seven plus years. Mm-hmm. I guess well, it was you might. More than that. Yeah, yeah. nineteen sixty-eight. If you used to be so like thirteen just, years, they were married. Yeah, so if you, well, if thirteen years. So thirteen years, somebody's been telling her what to do all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. Maybe she wouldn't know what to do. Like, how many people have had a murder happen in their house to <laughs> to say what is normal? Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's probably a fair comment. Um, before Max was murdered, she had gone to see a solicitor about a divorce. Right. And the solicitor pointed out that up till, uh, well, in 1968, um, it was fault-based. Divorce was fault-based. So you'd have to prove the other party had done something wrong. Okay. And that would include adultery. All right. So she said... Judy might be up for for owning up to adultery, right? Oh, definitely. But the, the, the flaw in the plan was that when Sheila said that she had been sleeping with Brian... The solicitor said, well, that's it, end of story. You're both committed adultery. What? So, so if it's a she, double adultery, you're not allowed to get a divorce? No, because she'd done the, the same to him. What? So, um, not she, more reason to get a divorce because everyone's unhappy in this relationship. 
It was 1976 that the Divorce Scotland Act came in, and uh, up until then it was fault-based. Somebody had to do something wrong, instead of just irretrievable breakdown of marriage. Um, so she had she hadn't succeeded in getting a divorce. My God, the past is another planet. It, it really, really is. is. I know you're right about that. Um, in any event, um, between the 14th of May 1968 and the 16th of August 1968, Sheila didn't tell a soul. She didn't tell a soul about the fact that Max had been murdered, apart from one person. Who was that? That was her mother. What did her mum say? Her mother, um, because the mother and daughter bond was extremely strong, Yeah. her mother said, oh, I hope he didn't suffer, something like that. Oh, right. So the mother wasn't actually, like, sad she, he was she gone. Didn't, she didn't, uh, well, in those days, it was a, a woman's role to be there for her man, no matter how bad. So presumably she would like cleaned up the murder scene in the interim. She did, but no, she didn't do it very successfully because they were able to, uh, in August, they were able to go to the house and they were able to check it forensically and find blood spatters. Um, also, she had found Max's clothes um, that morning, then the 14th, the 15th of May, um, she had been sitting downstairs and the phone went. And it was Brian who was phoning when he was on the road back up to Aberdeen. Mm-hmm. And he said, we've forgotten Max's clothes. They're in the garage. And um, we're going to have to get rid of them. Yeah. So, so she, Sheila started a bonfire, is what you're telling me, right? No, 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 she didn't. No, Sheila, no. she's not a criminal mastermind, this woman. <laughs> I, I don't think she is, because um, guess who organised the picking up the clothes? And who organised a new mattress for her? Trudy. The, ma- the Trudy? What? Trudy did. Trudy. So Trudy did, did Trudy not like Max either? I would have thought if anyone's going to be upset by this story, it would be Trudy. But Trudy's participating in the cover-up. Oh, she is. Oh, it, yeah, um it's, it'll all unravel in the end, but okay. at the end of the day, um, Trudy is uh, taking the lovers to Bradford. Yeah. She um, organises that uh, Max's clothes get picked up, and her husband, who's a serving police officer, uh, burns them. <gasps> what? And <laughs> Who the mattress... Thought? In the night, the bought the husband burned the mattress. The mattress was burned as well. <gasps> Who'd have thought in the nineteen sixties that police would participate in a crime <laughs> on Cloudland? <laughs> That's shocking. Yeah, but it's funny how the the public sympathy was on his side. It's it's funny because he had to resign, obviously, as a police officer. He was lucky he wasn't an accused at one point. But um, I think when Trudy gave her evidence in court. That's when the public realised that she was pretty deep into this. Yeah. And they just felt sorry for for, for Fred. Are we, are we saying that Fred didn't know that he was burning the clothes of somebody that was murdered? 
No, there's no suggestion of that. I mean, he wasn't stupid, Fred. So he knew what he was doing. He knew exactly so what he was doing. why would the public have any sympathy for him? Why would they not be like... It's hard to say, is... but I think the public um, obviously didn't like Trudy. I mean, from what you've said so far, Trudy does seem quite manipulative, but, oh, yeah. but we don't know her. We can't judge. We've never met her. Maybe we will be able to judge, though, as the story unfolds more, I, th- I right? think I think you're right. Well, once we get to the sort of the end of the story, we'll realise that um, she had a bit more to do with it. We're going to really dislike Trudy. I would imagine so. Okay. I would imagine so. <laughs> All right. Um, so, at the house at West Cairnbeg, she, she gets a phone call at six o'clock in the morning. Um, she finds the parcel of clothes. Um, she covers up. She tells the woman who cleans the house not to clean up the bedroom. Mm-hmm. So, right from the start, she's covered up for what has happened. Yeah. So, having made that decision, it must have been difficult, I think, to go back on that. Yeah. Because she just kept completely quiet. And of course, Alan Peters, the third party who was there, who had the car, um. He gets married in July of 1968 and his best man is Brian Tevendale. What? And they get married in the register office in Aberdeen. Um, the bride is expecting. Um, so that's her surprise. Yeah. But the bigger surprise was that everybody apart from the bride knew that Max had been murdered because there were four of them in the, the pictures, and uh, she, um, the the uh, the bride, was the only one that didn't know that they were all involved in this murder. Wait, so Trudy's there, and Sheila's there? Well, Trudy organised the party for them, but at the register office, it was just the four of them. Trudy's like, Trudy's doing everything, isn't she? She is, she is, and um, <clears throat> she was... Um, I think she was a bigger organiser than uh, than Sheila was. I mean, Trudy really, like, she should have used those skills for the power of good, right? She could have been really doing something great with her life with these amazing organisational skills that she had. Uh-huh. Yeah. She organised everything. But I, I, to be honest, I, I think she was probably uh, hoping that she would replace Sheila. Yeah. I well, that's That was the motive behind many things that she'd done. And then when it came to the murder, um, she was seen to be helping Sheila through her difficulty. Yeah. So it's a bit two-faced. It's a bit weird. It's a bit weird, the whole thing. Mm, well, anyway, maybe if she was getting money from him, maybe she didn't like him. She was just, there was some kind of financial or some other motive. I don't think so. I think she was just unceremoniously dumped yeah. by, by Max after the, the conference they had. And that just turned her against her. I, I think I think it did. I think it did. Wow. And um, as far as uh, she was concerned, I think she then had a grudge against Max um, because she had complied with everything he'd ever wanted. She had uh, enjoyed going up in the aeroplane with him. Oh, wow. Um, she had, uh, you know, Slept with them in many hotel rooms, and uh, when she gave evidence at, her, at the trial, um, she loved her 
15 minutes of glory. Yeah. And I think the Aberdeen public really disliked her because of that. I can imagine what the papers were saying about this. I mean, geez, they're like right-wing fascist newspapers that they are today, let alone back in the 1960s. I can imagine what they've been saying. I think um, the newspapers uh, thoroughly enjoyed it because of the sexual element, um, the, the, the drugs, the drink, the life-swapping aspect of it. Um, they had special correspondents from down south who were camped up in Aberdeen. The Aberdeen public, um, they were queuing up from five o'clock in the morning to get into the to see the the, wow. the trial. Uh, it was the days before um, daytime television, I suppose. Yeah. So it was a, a sort of entertainment for them. Was she quite glamorous? She looked because the picture yes. on the front of your book. It's not given glamour, but I imagine that's her mugshot, right? The picture on the front of the book, um, it looks to me as if that's uh, come from her uh, in the police station or possibly in court. I don't know. Yeah. But um, there are other pictures of her and she's more glamorous than that. Okay. Um but of course, in those days, in 1968, they concentrated on what she was wearing. And yeah, yeah, that's why that I was asking. Because I was thinking, like, they like a kind of femme fatale angle, don't they, these papers? That, uh, that's quite an interesting observation, because I was thinking about this, and in the 1960s, women were portrayed as either femme fatales or hapless, uh, trusting sort of people. They didn't really have their own minds. Yeah. They were wives, firstly, and mothers. Um, they were emotional. They were instinctive creatures. And uh, their lives were preordained to be mothers and wives. I mean, it would turn you into an emotional creature, wouldn't it, if that's what your life was like? I, I think so. But, um, the press obviously depicted Sheila Garvey as a femme fatale. But Trudy uh, thought about this. And she did her best to present herself as a hostage to fortune uh, in that she was a prisoner of Max's love. <laughs> Sorry, what? I, I, I nearly worked. I nearly worked. <laughs> Apart from the, the people in Aberdeen who despised her. Um, she had to move away eventually. Jeez. Um, I, I think um, that uh, Trudy's got quite a lot to answer. However, um, I digress myself now. <clears throat> um, what happened was Edith, Sheila's mum, mm -hmm. went to Lonskip Police Office on the 16th of August. The reason that she went there is because Sheila had said she was thinking of moving to Aberdeen with the kids. Fine. And Edith was against her taking the grandchildren to Aberdeen because she didn't like Brian Tevendale. So she, so her mum shopped her, so the cop shopped? Yes. Just because she was moving away? Not because she thought she was involved in a heinous crime, but because she was moving away? It's quite difficult to explain this because Sheila Garvey said that she told her mother about Max's murder, but she had to implicate herself. Otherwise, she would have... Um, Edith would have gone straight to the police. 
yeah. to shop Brian. Yeah. So she sort of hinted that she was part of it. To and, get her mum to stop. And right. her, her, her mum um, then uh, waited until Sheila confirmed she was thinking of going to Aberdeen. Because uh, the whole time, the three months that Max was missing, um, Sheila had gone up to Aberdeen consistently to stay overnight with, with uh, Brian. Okay. And um, the mum looked after the kids because they were right. at school. So that that happened about two or three nights a week, apparently. And she would just disappear and come back the next morning. And the mum was unhappy about that. The mum was unhappy because she thought Brian Tevendale was uh, quite an evil sort of person. So she ended up going to the police station. The cops had obviously been out to see Sheila several times and she just told them lies about, I don't know where Max went. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian Tevendale and um, Fred Burst, the police officer, had um, explained that Max was a drinker, is a womanizer. It was possibly homosexual. Was in 1968. That was still a criminal offence. Well, he wouldn't be homosexual, would he? If he's having affairs with women as well. Yeah, but Brian um, also said that he tried it on with him. I think it was just to to blacken his character. All right, it's so weird. I mean, it's like a thing of the past, isn't it? It's just uh, a, right, a I mean, thing I'll never understand. Uh, that same here, but uh, at the same time. I think the idea was that he wasn't a proper upstanding citizen, as it were, and it was no great loss to society, is what they were trying to imply. Right. So um, when Edith had gone to the police office, um, that led directly to Sheila getting arrested Yeah. at West Cairn Beg. They then went and arrested... Um, Brian, at a place called the East Nuke Bar, which is in King Street in Aberdeen. Um, when I was last up in Aberdeen a couple of years ago doing a trial, uh, the East Nuke Bar was being, not demolished, but revamped into houses. Okay. So it was it was there from 1917 right through to, nine, uh, to 2019. And wow. uh, it was, that was it. It was a goner. But the building's still there, it's just that it's... I think the building's still there. I'll, I'll, been... I'll check when I'm up in Aberdeen next week. Yeah. But uh, it was it was quite a thought that she had worked here, Sheila had worked here as well. Um, they were short of staff, so she used to help out. And uh, they went there and the police, and they, they arrested Brian from the East Nuke Bar. And <clears throat> when Brian was arrested, he didn't say anything about Alan Peters, the third person. Yeah. Sheila uh, was taken into Bucksburn, the CID headquarters. Brian asked to speak to her on his own. And he tried to convince her. Wait, wait, wait. He asked to speak to her on his own and the police were like, oh, okay, cool. The police allowed it. What? (laughs) I know. It's it's a different planet, as you say. Holy cow. That's unbelievable. The reason that they allowed it is because they recorded it. Oh, okay. They recorded it. 
But um, even like that's dodgy as that's well. Extremely dodgy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these people have got no uh, idea that their rights are being infringed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet, Brian did his best to get her to confess that she'd killed um, Max. What? So they've got it recorded that Brian's telling her to say that she did it, even though she didn't. Uh huh. So they know she didn't do it at this point. They know. No, the, the police believe what Brian told them. Brian, when he was arrested, gave a voluntary statement, and the voluntary statement was that um, Max had appeared in the bedroom with a gun. He had threatened Sheila with the gun that he intended um, having anal sex with her, whether she agreed or not. Do we think the anal sex thing is, like, true? Or is that, I mean, is that something that they've added to the story, like like the homosexual thing to try and make him worse? Or No, no, that, that, that was confirmed by both um, Sheila Garvey and Trudy. Trudy oh, Rush. right, okay, so, yeah. So that, that's what, what he liked. He was... So, okay. according to, to what Brian said, um, she phoned him. Um, Sheila phoned him and said, I've just killed Max. And his job was to remove the body and, and clean up. carry the body to uh, Lauriston Castle. Wow. But that's how the police were convinced that she was involved. She had no idea that he had been saying this to the police. Yeah. It's only when she went through court on her first appearance that she discovered that Brian had tried to blame her. That's crazy. So what she did was she then um, gave a statement as well. And her statement was to the effect that um, Brian and Alan Peters had turned up at the house one night yeah. She and she she described exactly what happened. Yeah. She'd been lying in bed, she'd taken the sonorils. Um she was wakened up when Brian came to the bedside, took her out of the bed, killed Max um while she was in the bathroom. Yeah. And the police then discovered that there was a third person involved. They had no idea because Brian kept that totally quiet. Yeah. Now, this guy, Alan Peters, was 20. He was a very shy character. He was easily dominated, and Brian was quite a sort of dominant figure. And what Brian did was he uh, had warned him not to say anything. And, of course, that's exactly what he did. He moved to Fort Augustus, and when the police went to Fort Augustus to pick him up, he then came up with this story to the extent that um, Sheila had let them into the house. Right. Sheila had given them a drink beforehand. Okay. Sheila had hidden them upstairs. Sheila had told them when Max was sleeping. Uh-huh. Sheila had then left them to murder Max and once Max was murdered, she disappeared for half an hour with Brian. Right. What? Now, what puzzles me about that is, if she was guilty of any of that, uh-huh. any of these little points, 
Why would she have even mentioned Alan Peters? Yeah, because she knew that he was going to corroborate. Like, uh, he was, yeah, he was going to add stuff, and um, that is, I think, what is the puzzle here because when Trudy gave her version of events, she had none of these details in it. Oh, really? So Trudy. Whose story did Trudy's most resemble or is hers completely different yet again? Yeah, we've got we've three different versions yeah. of the same event um, from, from the three accused. But Trudy um, doesn't mention many of the things that Alan Peters mentions. Yeah. But by the time the trial comes up, she does. Ah, okay. Now, so nowadays, wa- that would be put to a witness. There's a certain subsection of the act where you say, have you always said this? Have you always told the truth? And witnesses invariably go, oh, that's right, I've always told the truth. (laughs) And you say, but didn't you tell the police something entirely different when you first gave a statement? And then the judge rules on it whether you can lead that or not. And then um, it's then laid out in front of the jury to who's telling the truth or not. Yeah. But in 1968... It seems to have just slipped by. Just a big it's, old free-for-all. It's, it's a funny one, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. Um, do you want to do the trial next week then? or Let's do the trial next week. Okay, yeah. that's fair enough. If you like our podcast, then please like and share with your friends. We would love to hear your feedback and ideas on Twitter at Murder Scotland. If you'd like any more information on our sources or Alan's books, you can find us at www.murderscotland.com. Murder Scotland is written, presented and produced by Alan Nicholl. Presented, produced and edited by me, Julie Lamont. Our consulting producer is Paige Henderson. Music is called Moments by Adrian Walther. And a special thanks to Steve Garside and Miriam Watson for their unending support and patience with me and Alan. <laughs> <laughs>